Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge, The Common Bridge, most popular on Substack.com. Please look us up there. Also on Mission Control Radio, most social media outlets, podcast places of your choice, and YouTube TV channel. Today we've got with you a very broad topic, and it's a very important one. As listeners, viewers, readers, and contributors to the Common Bridge know, the United States politics are dominated by two political parties, and, and reporting's undergone a significant transformation. Well, to talk about that today, our guest, Justin Higgins, is going to cover the polarization in America, his view on the state of reporting, and frankly, whether our future is one of further despair and strife, or perhaps one of finding solutions. Mr. Higgins has been up close and personal as a very active member of both major political parties, not at the same time, but both as a Republican and Democrat. We're going to dive into that a little bit, too. He is host of Politics Plus Media 101. He draws a distinguished series of guests and has live interviews. We're going to hear about that, too. So speaking to us today from Washington, D.C., Mr. Justin Higgins. Justin, welcome to the Common Bridge. So happy you've spent some time with us. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Richard. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. I love what you're doing and trying to create a common bridge. So I think that our country could use more of this and more of you. Well, that's kind of you to say so. Let's all work on this together. Our audience likes to know a little bit about our guests. So where did you grow up and maybe what your education was and your career arc and little personal insight. Yeah. So uh, today I'm a consultant in Washington, D.C., in the heart of the swamp. Uh, but <laughs> I grew up uh, <laughs> back in the day, I grew up in New Hampshire and uh, my family was a blue collar working class family. My dad was a Vietnam veteran. My mom was working for the state of Massachusetts and they instilled a lot of love for America. Obviously, my dad fought for the country and also giving back to your community. So we were going to the soup kitchen every month with my mom and doing toy drives and wrapping gifts. And that kind of got me interested in giving back to the community. And then, Rich, as you know, for no reason at all, every four years, New Hampshire becomes the center of the political universe. Yeah, right? it does. can't even imagine it, what it's like up there. There's a million people, but you have everyone from President Barack Obama, to Mike Huckabee, to anybody who's running for office, they, they come to New Hampshire and they shake hands with us. They meet the voters. They ask, they answer our questions. And that really impacted me growing up. So then I, I took all of that experience and switched over and studied some political philosophy at Tufts University, which is a liberal undergraduate school and, and melded nicely with my conservative upbringing. Um, but that interaction with all of these politicians, I was hooked. So I just immediately moved to Washington, D.C. And it's really the foundation of what we do on our show as well, trying to create a, com a similar to a common bridge, but bringing these prominent guests to the audience themselves. I love that arc coming out of New Hampshire, a hotbed of political activity overrunning the state, it seems, every four years. And then down to D.C. and then being hooked on politics and now politics and media 101. Tell our audience what it is, why you're 
you're doing it, where to find it, and maybe what your role is along with Jeff Browning. Yeah, so uh, they can find it on any podcast app. Our, our website is pm101.live, and then they just type in politics space, the plus sign space media space 101. And what we are doing is similar to you. We are bringing on voices from the left. We are bringing on voices from the right. It's not going to be screaming. It's going to be an intelligent conversation about the most pressing political issues today, but also 10 years from now. And what makes our podcast unique is I'm a DC insider. Jeff Browning worked for 10 years in the house and in committees. And he's kind of like your Brian. He's our podcast producer, music, and really makes the trains run on time. What we're doing that is unique, though, in addition to getting all of these big name guests like John Dickerson, Whip Clyburn, uh, Eric Erickson from the right, and Anna Kasparian from the left, is I mentioned New Hampshire. So in New Hampshire, when I was a kid, I listened to President Obama speak in a room filled of 200 people. It was a small room, no bigger than the the size of a first floor house. Everyone was jam-packed. He was running for president. And he gave this thunderous speech where you could just feel the emotion building, his energy from the stage. And I was a Republican at the time. And everybody was captivated. And then he answered questions from the audience, from everyday citizens. So our show is different in that we give that 400 level political class in the interview for 30 minutes. And then we open it up to the audience for two reasons, to build civic engagement, but also to check for our own bias. We get Republicans and Democrats asking guests questions that they want to hear. So I think it's a, a unique uh, atmosphere. And we're really trying to just bring people together to listen to the same source of news. I applaud your efforts on this. What's your business model? Are you getting funding to do this? And what do you hope for the show to become? Yes. So we are in partnership with Clubhouse and that uh, definitely helps. And, and they're a great partner. We want our show to become something similar to yours, where it's a YouTube TV substack across all the different channels and also a political newsletter, which will be the heart of it, where we are giving that uh, nonpartisan we are using our insider information, the way we can understand the information, and just to dil it, distill it to people in quick bites so that they can, if they're waiting tables, if they're working in the corporate world, just read it real quick and then forget about DC. Well, look, I think there's a great opportunity in the marketplace there. So are you on a subscription model, advertising model, your corporate sponsors? How are you going about funding your adventure? Right now, it's um, through some sponsors, um, but it's really a, a bootstring operation. It's not too capital intensive, so mm -hmm. it's um, easy for us to produce these shows. It's it's pretty cheap, and um, now we're just focusing on building it out. Terrific. Well, let's let's dive into the political landscape, if we could, a little bit. Um, yeah. What are the issues Americans care about the most today? What's your audience telling you and your guests? Yeah, so it's the audience, the guests, and then I did have experience working in Congress for a member of the Tea Party and then the RNC and then a political appointee for a governor. I think it's pretty universal. And please tell me what you're hearing from your guests and your audience as well. But I think it's security. And that's number one, two, and three, whether it be uh, national and physical security. So mm -hmm. for the country, for your family, you don't want to get shot by a police officer, no matter who you are. 
And then economic security. So being able to put food on the table right now, but also the American dream, which is creating a better life for your children. And, and that is very important. And these things are nothing revolutionary. Um, so I'd be interested to hear what you think the most important issues are. Well, hopefully I'll be on your show and we'll go into that in detail. People want the fundamentals. They want their government to work. When they read a new source, they want to be able to trust it. And when you look at the big issues in the country, healthcare, the largest vertical market in the largest economy in the history of the world, and we have an idiotic financing system. That's as about as kind as I can put it. It's really have to improve to get up to the level of idiotic. We haven't decided what we're going to do about firearms in the country. And we have people that think they're advantaged by being on one side and other people that think they're advantaged for being here. And meanwhile, we're losing Americans to death because we can't keep the guns out of the hands of people that shouldn't have them. That's two of them. Then being able to build a life. And we are past the post-World War II economy where it was an automotive economy U.S. companies had 75% of the world market, and there were middle-class standards of living for working in those industries and related industries. Now, you know, the biggest companies in the world, Amazon. Is Amazon putting middle-class workers into nice homes so they send their kids to good schools so that they can fund a college education, put a boat in the driveway? That, to me, is, is what is puzzling to Americans. And then you mentioned security, of course, is what's the face of the country? What should it be? And should people feel safe, you know, both internationally uh, as well in their own homes? So how do you think our political system is doing on these big issues from an insider's perspective? So, I mean, there are so many issues, right? You touched on healthcare. You can't give a pass, in my opinion, you can't give a passing or failing grade. So the system has been doing well. Uh, the Affordable Care Act was a massive step forward and progress takes time and it's slow. And the, maybe this is why I'm a Joe Manchin Democrat, where I understand the rate of progress takes a while. But if you look at the cost of prescription drugs, that is absolutely crazy. It's something that can be fixed pretty easily, and we can't seem to come together on it. Uh, the financing system that you just mentioned, the way that the insurers are able to manipulate profits that should be of uh, finances that should be going to patients, they're putting in their executives' pockets. Um, my father personally, and I don't go into this often, was a victim of the opioid crisis. He told his doctor that he could not take anything that was addictive. And his doctor goes, well, don't worry. I have this great new medication for you. It's called OxyContin and it's oh, non-addictive. No. Oh, no. So that obviously uh, changed my family. He, he didn't uh, pass away from that, but he, he got addicted to those um, types of medications that the pharmaceutical company lobbied the FDA on to be able to brand it as non-addictive. So from healthcare, it's a mixed bag where the Affordable Care Action is good, but some of the influence of corporations is really nefarious. I think from a national security perspective, we're doing pretty well. We're pulling out of wars. We're bringing Americans back home. We are still funding a robust defense system. But I think where we can do better, specifically where I don't see the political system working on these big issues, you mentioned gun reform. There is, depending on the polls you look at, for simple common sense legislation, 80 to 90% support on background checks. 
that's going nowhere in the foreseeable future. Um, voting rights, th- there's a lot of support for that. That's also going nowhere in the foreseeable future. And maybe the biggest issue that you hit is we have moved away from this type of automobile industrialized economy where you could be a blue collar worker, you didn't need to get a four year degree, and you could buy a a house with a white picket fence, have a family, and leave them better off than you were, and also live that life without those financial concerns. Because our society is evolving so much with globalization, which can be a good thing, uh, and then technology, um, we are experiencing a transition from these older industries into these newer industries. And where government is failing is these companies are too darn big. Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, uh, not only is the minimum wage reprehensible, it hasn't been increased, uh, but they are so big, they are unregulated. And this is the way that our government is set up to work, Richard. And so it's not necessarily like all doom and gloom here. When new industries are created, they create the rules of the road, and then the government is supposed to come in and regulate these industries. So the tech industries that we've been discussing are now really the way of the future, and it's only going to get more so with automation and AI. Um, So I would say it's incomplete with the way that the government is approaching these technological issues, which has ramifications for building a middle class and our society and our media ecosystem. Um, But it looks like the Biden administration and also conservatives like Congressman Ken Buck, who's a member of the House Freedom Caucus, they are starting to come together to create antitrust legislation, some regulations around Section 230, and other issues where, although the grade is incomplete, I think we're moving in the right direction. I'm hopeful. Thank you for listening or watching this segment of Richard Helpy's The Common Bridge. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. At Substack.com, search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. Now back to Richard Helpy's The Common Bridge. I hope that we get to dive into big tech and and censorship and how the government's doing in those aspects a little bit later in our talk today. From the standpoint of a guy that's on the inside of Washington, I'm going to ask you two questions at the same time. One has the art of compromise been lost? And and does that have anything to do, why is passing legislation seemingly just so difficult? And maybe it should be, I don't know. What, what's your cut on this? So it should be, in, in my opinion. Uh, passing legislation should be very difficult. It should take compromise. If it was easy, then you wouldn't need um, compromise. Put the filibuster aside. Um, I think that we are able to pass big legislation. So, and that is through normal order. This is another nuanced answer for you. Under President Obama's second term, he got Republicans to support the Trade Promotion Authority Bill. We don't need to go into the specifics, but it was setting up for these major trade agreements in a super polarized era. Under President Obama, uh, under President Trump, we got some criminal justice reform done on a bipartisan fashion. And then under President Biden, we got the bipartisan infrastructure deal done. And that was a very, very big deal. So these are the big bills that people focus on. Now, Build Back Better is stalled and you have voting rights and gun laws that are stalled. That's just what people see in the media though, Rich. I would argue that most legislation that gets passed 
gets done outside of the eye of the media. And the public just isn't focusing on it. There are hundreds of bills that get passed every single year and are signed into law. And there's a lot of good stuff that gets done. So our system is working when there isn't maybe a spotlight on that system. Well, let me pick out one of those. You mentioned voting rights. And if you had to guess how many people think the contest was about filibuster and Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema versus how many people do you think knew what was in the bills? I would argue that most people probably think that it's about uh, squabbles and inter-party fighting with the Democrats. So Manchin and Cinema, But that's see, not would, even true. Well, let me just, the reason I ask the question is this, and by the way, I'm nerdy enough. I actually read legislation. Okay. I actually read the Obamacare bill because I was in the healthcare business. So I, I know that inside and out. And I think the best part about that bill was the expansion of Medicaid. Yep. And the thing it didn't do is we need to break the back of this employer sponsored healthcare system, which I've spoken on that many times and published on that. But as it relates to the voting rights, nobody came out and said, here's the problem, here's the solution, and we're going to solve this. It was an unnecessarily polarization. And state legislatures were doing what they were supposed to do and making sure they could conduct elections. Wasn't anything sinister about it, but didn't you find it a little absurd? that our president would go to one of our states and say he was in the belly of the beast. When President Biden went to Georgia? Yeah. I mean, seriously, is that a serious politician and a serious president? Where's the appeal? Why not go there and say, you know, in Joe Biden parlance, you know, come on, man, look, here's the deal. We have X, Y, and Z, and we want to do A, B, and C instead. Instead, he goes in there and he says he's in the belly of the beast. And then he doesn't tell the truth about what's in the legislation. And then people are surprised that it fails. How many people know what's in the bill? And by the way, I've asked lots of people that question. Yep. Nobody can tell, although people are misinformed on both the right and the left. They've been fed a set of talking points and they're really passionate about it. They're completely wrong. They're completely uninformed or misinformed. But they can't tell you what's in them. I actually went and read the bills. You and I have that in common because I was a policy advisor in Congress and then for a governor. So I mm -hmm. read this legislation as well. I would. So let's take a step back if we really want to discuss this. Um, so voting rights was never going to pass. Voting rights was introduced in the House as HR1 by the Democrats, which is called the messaging bill. That was to get their grassroots supporters behind them to show them that they were actually doing something. There was never going to be 10 Republican senators that were going to support really any voting rights. They may do the Electoral College Act, which we can put to the side, um, Electoral Count Act, which we can put to the side. Um, but so the Democrats approach this with this is our wish list. This is our messaging bill. We're just going to throw everything into it. it it's not going to pass. The issue is the filibuster. The filibuster is the media has miscovered this. It's not Joe Manchin. It's not Kristen Cinema. Kirsten Cinema. excuse me. It is about six or seven other senators. And you can go back and there was a vote on cloture about the filibuster. But basically, Joe Manchin is taking the media heat off of uh, Senator Shaheen from New Hampshire, Senator Hassan. There are institutionalists in the Senate who do not believe in removing the filibuster. So considering that the filibuster was a non-starter, that the original proposal was not going anywhere... Biden didn't focus on the issue until d very late, right? In until recently. The reason why he went and gave that speech, and this speaks to 
what was going on with your question about it being uh, fiery and, and inflammatory. He was giving some red meat to his base. This was a campaign issue. This was not a legislative issue. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, while I'm blaming the Democrats for presenting a messaging bill and not acting necessarily seriously to pass legislation, which was never going to pass. There's a reason why it was never going to pass. It was never going to pass because it was a non-starter for Republicans. If you expand voting rights in these states, they are under the premise that it's going to hurt them electorally. Now, that may not be true because if we look at what happened in Virginia recently, uh, there were many more Republicans that have voted mail-in. And and there are many other states we can point to about Republicans voting for mail-in voting. So I think the issue with the voting rights stuff is that there was no chance for it to ever pass. And then Democrats played a game with the media and their base to say that it could pass. And therefore, they had to use this extremist language, if that makes sense. Right. But when you look at the state level bills, many of them expanded early voting. Many of them expanded mail-in voting. We still have states like Delaware that doesn't have it. And you have more early voting in Georgia and Texas than you have in New York. So that, to me, is kind of the nonsense about it. Voting is a very serious thing. The integrity of the ballots, a very serious thing. And they were playing with this. That Now, I didn't know what you just told me as, your, as the insider that, and I understand the game is played that, you know, I'm going to vote for this bill because I know it's not going to pass. So I can go home and tell my base that I voted for it. Gee, I didn't get there, but they really didn't want it. And I had never heard the term messaging bill before. That's really interesting that it's going to send a message. And then the only thing I would say is that if we can build this common bridge, and I hope that you'll join me on it with your show and my show, why not, you know, say, look, voting's important. You people that we've elected to figure this out, go to Camp David and figure out what you agree on and come down to D.C. and say, these are the things you agree on. We're going to do this with early voting. We're going to do this with drop boxes. We're going to do this with voter ID and so forth. Because on a lot of the elements, there's massive agreement among people like you and me and people like Brian Kruger and your friends and my friends. But the people we actually hire to do this don't do it. It's insane. I agree. It's really difficult. And with voting rights, this unfortunately isn't a both sides issue. So the Democrats started out with their messaging bill, but then you had Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock and others come out unequivocally supporting ID for voting. And that was a Republican mandate. And Joe Manchin went to Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and some of the moderates to Uh, negotiate a trimmed down version of the bill, which could be palatable. The Republicans in the Senate want no part of it. So how can you as a party, and and I I think that Governor Sununu of New Hampshire, Republican governor, if he ran for Senate, he would beat Senator Maggie Hassan tomorrow. It would be a blowout. She's up for election in 22. He came out and said he went down to Washington, D.C., met with Mitch McConnell. They had a conversation and Mitch McConnell said, we're not going to pass anything until the 2024 election. So when you're working with a party, and I don't want, there there are stuff I can get on Biden and the Democrats for, right? There's plenty of stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you're working with a party on an issue that is so fundamental to American democracy, and they're not even willing to sit down at the table, how can we blame Democrats when Democrats are making concessions and negotiating in good faith and there's no path forward? So that's what I struggle with. It's, it's really hard to have a common bridge when on certain issues, the other party just wants no part of it. 
I think we're in agreement on that. And I would tell you what Bernie Sanders said when he was running for president. And he was asked in a presser, if you couldn't get your agenda through, would you do it by executive action? And he said, of course not. I would go to the American people and I would tell them this is what we want to do. And I would tell them to call your senators and call your congressional representatives. It's like, Yeah, that sounds good to me. I would rather see a president say, here's our proposal. Call your senators because we think this is something that needs to be done instead of going in and saying you're in the belly of the beast. I just like grow up and do that. But let me ask you this, that those kinds of things make me wonder, do you sense that the political parties are drawing nearer to the people they serve? Or are they distancing themselves from the populace? I think it's both, but I will give you an answer. You are a political insider, I see. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. There is a nuance to this, right? Because we can't look at the extreme activists and say that they're not the people that these politicians serve. So in the sense of the really politically involved, the louder voices, the ones you see on Twitter, the ones you see on Facebook and YouTube in your comments, not on this show but politicians see on their comments, they are more in tune with them because they're able to use this new technology to hear what they want and then interact with them. But I think that to be honest, taking that aside, uh, politicians are growing further and further apart from the majority of voters. The majority of voters, like you said, they want government to work so they don't have to focus on it. They want economic security and they want their future to be better tomorrow than it is today. It's really simple. Um, Mm -hmm. But what you have happen is the louder voices are not only getting heard on Twitter, so the politicians are responding to that. That's what gets a politician into CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, is saying the extreme thing that makes the headline. There's also another issue, though, Rich, here. Campaign finance. So campaign finance, because of Citizens United, has injected a ton of special interest money into our system. We talked about healthcare earlier, prescription drugs. 70% of Americans agree, Rich. They're too damn expensive and they have a solution to it. Um, But because of the lobbying money, it's very difficult to actually pass that solution through Congress. So you, you have that aspect. The other aspect though, is when you combine the campaign finance with the Twitter, you get a ton of outside funding for these small congressional races. Go look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. I believe she raised in her I, first fundraising report. I don't want to look at Marjorie report. Taylor Greene. Do I have to? <laughs> Neither do I. Ne- Neither okay. do I. I don't look at her. She raised $4.5 million in her first report, and it's all from out-of-state voters. So if she's getting out-of-state voters to fund her, how can she possibly respond to her in-state voters? But yeah, she's, she's awful. I think you made a lot of really good points in there about the more extremes get the coverage. And that gets us into the entertainment aspect of what used to be reporting. And the reporters just don't want to ask that follow-up question. And I I cringe when I watch the pressers. And, you know, I watch a lot of C-SPAN and things so I can hear some of the real hearings. And a lot of the real hearings are actually pretty good. It gives you faith in the country that there are some good people there. But the process to get good people there has kind of failed us. And when you think about our last two presidential cycles, who can make the case out of 330 million-ish people, our two best choices were Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and Donald Trump and Joe Biden. 
Okay, maybe Joe Biden 25 years ago. Okay, maybe. But that's to me what is broken is that you have people like that. And and I think Biden, you know, he's a little testy and he said some things to auto workers like, you know, hey, I don't work for you and told the radio host, you're not black. But he's done that his whole life. Okay, so that whereas you have both, both Trump and Clinton literally insulting large swaths of the electorate. Like, how can you not have a polarized country when you're attacking the voters of the other party? And how can you you know, be close to them? I mean, President Trump doesn't, he's just, nobody in the media is focused on this. But President Trump, for example, is invalidating the votes of 81 million Americans. So right off the bat, that is something that you're saying. But no, I think what you're talking about uh, in the larger scheme of things is the way the media has changed the way that politicians basically get the airtime, the notoriety, so mm-hmm. that they're selected. And Rich, I have intimate, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I worked at the RNC in 2016 on senior opposition research during the Trump campaign. And the Trump campaign was different from all other campaigns because they didn't have Normally, a presidential campaign in the general election is run out of the headquarters of that presidential campaign. They offloaded most of the work to us. So Trump was making up stuff and his talking points and going up. The the Republican National Committee. I see. Okay. So so I worked in the headquarters of the Republican National Committee, and my job was under Sean Spicer. um, And our job was to basically manipulate the media. And I think that this is probably interesting because people don't get this inside look into the RNC because people aren't willing to talk about it. So our job was to create talking points for surrogates, to push back on the media, to get things in the media that we wanted talked about. And ultimately, at the end of the day, there's two parties to blame here. It's the politicians and the people who did what I did, because when an issue comes up, our job, if we couldn't defend it and couldn't fight it on the facts was to confuse the public. And it's not that hard to do. And then the other people to blame and CNN, all of their anchors, I I genuinely like CNN, but all of their anchors are in an uproar because Jeff Zucker recently lost his job. But what Jeff Zucker did, I believe, is he really hurt our media ecosystem because he made it into entertainment. He focused all of the coverage on these Trump rallies. He gave him all of this earned media and he made these politicians, uh, sorry, he made these reporters, instead of covering government, they're covering politics so that the way that they Mm -hmm. get on CNN is to cover the horse race. They're not C-SPAN reporters covering the hearings that you and I like to watch and your listeners like to watch. Um, so I think that the the degradation of the media ecosystem to be clickbaity, but also the way that politicians are able to now manipulate the 24-hour news cycle are both to blame. Well, look, I think you've, you've said a lot in there, and I, I would concur with you that CNN, they have no credibility on a long list of things. Our President Biden said years ago, I'm sure you're familiar with this quote, politics ain't beanbag. And so the political opposition research and the attacks on the opposition is kind of part of the game. And I, and I think if you're running for office, it's, it's tragic, but that's kind of a thing that you're going to get attacked fairly and unfairly. The thing that I get concerned about is attacking the voters. You can't call someone deplorable and then tell them you want to be their leader. And Trump, you know, had hit a lot of 
terrible things he said about people. And you can't say that stuff and say, I want to be your leader at the same time, and that we have to find common ground, commonality in order to advance. And this is this is why I asked the question, you know, are the politicians getting closer? And it's kind of, you're making the case that they don't have to. They just have to like satisfy their tribe, so to speak. And, and, you know, when you think about that, we take that into the pandemic. How much do you think the pandemic unified or split America? Well, I think President Biden did what you just were, were talking about, right? He, the reason why he won is he didn't attack the voters. He promised to return to normalcy. He didn't run on this grand platform. It was he's going to come in and just bring respectability back to the office. The pandemic... I think has just divided us because we've been dealing with these two competing trends for a while. One is the culture wars, and that is very broad in a dumbed down term, but it is a- It's very appropriate. And your characterization is spot on. Okay. Thank you for that. It's like me and you are having different values that we prioritize, and now we're going to just argue because we have to force our values on everybody else. And, And there are many examples we can use, but the pandemic has- flared up across these fault lines. So it's divided us on masks, right? So originally the science was, you should probably wear a mask. We don't know what the heck coronavirus is. It makes sense to wear a mask. Now, as we get more and more and more information, we're learning that unless you really have a KN95 mask, there may not be that much benefit. But the Democrats who have been saying, follow the science, follow the science, follow the science, aren't recalibrating their approach based on the science, because it's now entrenched in a culture war. Masking itself has been a culture war. Um, The other issue that this pandemic has laid bare is the death of expertise. Um, And this is the fault of both parties, the Republican Party, obviously much more so. Um, But essentially what has happened is Democrats have made science a capital S religion where because somebody with a degree who has a PhD degree and researches this says something, you need to now worship it. And even if it may be right, we need to take this to the nth degree with our policy. We need to lock everybody down. We need to do these extreme measures. And there's no nuance in, well, maybe the science is saying this, but maybe the best way to approach it is not the path you want. Maybe it's some more moderate path. And then the Republicans, on the other hand, have just completely disregarded expertise. And that has been happening for a while. And you see it specifically in DC with the brain drain that is going on in the party. When I think about the the pandemic and such, science, there's always theories. And, and again, because of my background in health data, and I've been able to access a lot of people, some who would come and be on my show, and I've covered the the pandemic. But I love the way you phrased that, about that it morphed into a culture war. It did indeed do that. We watched both sides flip-flop on their side, depending on which way the winds were blowing. Of course, during the campaign, both Vice President Harris and President Biden were saying, well, I don't know if we should trust these vaccines. Trump develops the vaccines, <laughs> tells people not to take them, <laughs> which is... Is nuts, but I, I think that that today, the split really is, um, you know, service workers and lower wage people are wearing masks, and but today we have this split now where people that are behind the desk at a hotel or in a, or serving in a restaurant are wearing masks, and and other people that have a job that they can put their MacBook under their arm and go out into the park with a cup of coffee and do their their work aren't required to do that. And, and I think it's a, a, a fairly hideous division 
because just some of your opening comments and about your own personal biography, I know that's it rubs us the wrong way. And then to declare that that a mask is a, you know, either mask on or mask off, we did have trouble finding our way. And the thing that troubled me is I'd hear a speaker come on and go, well, we're following the science. And I'm like, okay, what science are you following? You know, what's the theory? What's the grounding? And that's, and they would leave it and walk away. And I watched those same politicians violate their own rules repeatedly. And I'm, you know, I'll pick on the governor from my home state who told people, you can't go hug your aging relative in a nursing home. Don't go visit the old people. They can die in loneliness. Don't go to Florida for spring break because everybody down there is going to die. Okay. Travels to Florida to visit her elderly father and says, well, I have to do that because I'm, I'm a daughter. It's like, well, what about the 10 million people you're supposed to be leading by example? It's that kind of follow the science, but I'm going to go do something else that I think is just outrageous. All right. And, and again, you know, you've got you. It's not like it's not a partisan thing. I mean, you know, Ted Cruz trying to book it to uh, Cancun because, hey, he was off in Texas. is going to go down as one of the you know, most <laughs> idiotic uh, political moves. And, and look, the, the public, the pandemic is going to be discussed for a long time. But when you think what might your crystal ball say when politics start? you know, doing a retrospective on, on the pandemic, you know, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? What do you think they're going to talk about? Well, I first want to piggyback off of what you said, because you made it right. It's not a political divide. It's an elite divide. It's Mm -hmm. do as I say, don't as I don't do as I do rich. It's Gavin Newsom going out to eat at the French, uh, laundry or whatever restaurant. French, that he French went out laundry. To I was there one time. I still remember the meal. It was over 20 years ago. It's that good. It's okay. that good. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 um, you said about the workers wearing the masks. I've been working from home. Now I have to go into the office and we have to wear a mask for nine hours a day. And it is insane. Especially you, you realize it's insane when you go into the bars or the restaurants, which I'm sure uh, you and Brian and your listeners are doing. You don't have to wear a mask when you're eating. It's the people serving you the food and helping you have a great time and, and really waiting on you hand and foot that have to wear the masks no matter what. Um, so I do think that there's this great divide between the elites and the not elites. And it is for di- very unfortunate. Now, what do I think we're going to learn? I think that we're going to learn pandemics are hard. <laughs> I, I think that uh, messaging to the general public on scientific issues is really hard when the science is evolving. Like you said, science isn't static. It's not a religion. You don't have your texts that you follow. Um, so we're going to be more careful in that regard. I think, and not to get belabored on this point, I think one of the big issues is early on in the pandemic, the source of the pandemic became very politicized where you had your experts saying it's impossible that this came from a lab. And People just in the media immediately agreed, okay, this is impossible. And you had some others like Josh Rogan of the Washington Post making these great reporting and and releasing these cables and these documents. So I think when we look back on it, the media hopefully will be 
less quick to completely censor and shut down dissenting voices with legitimate concern about the origins of something or anything based on it's just the science. From a policy standpoint, I think that I look back to the 2008 crisis and the bailouts. Those bailouts were focused on paying big banks money. Of course, it may have been necessary to keep our credit system going, but look at what just happened in 2020 under President Trump and President Biden. Money went to small businesses, not enough. It wasn't targeted enough. But Rich, what we're going to look back on is we're going to see a changing philosophy in Washington, D.C. that is a very positive one, in my opinion. We are going to start to give money to small uh, government spending and funding to support small businesses and people directly. The direct payments were a good thing. And you see this right now with the child tax credit that's being debated. Get more money into people's pockets, get government out of their house and, and let them make their decisions. And I think that even hopefully the Democratic Party as well will, will start to go along with this. And that's really what I hope we take away from it. I'm really happy that you mentioned the child tax credit because it has near universal support. And frankly, it corrects a flaw in the tax systems that's been around that was penalizing people for marriage, penalizing people for raising kids. And, and frankly, the economics didn't work if, if you had both parents as wage earners. But instead of putting together a single tax bill, we're going to have this child tax credit as Bernie Sanders wants to do, and I agree with him, we bury it someplace else. And so the people are no longer being served. I thought that Sanders would have made a good president just because of his approach to things, but he got torpedoed in 16. He got torpedoed again in 20 by his own party that took him out, you know, fear that they were going to lose. But, you know, we need people that, that can at least call the question. Now, I don't agree with a lot of his solutions, but at least he's calling the question. But, you know, look, jumping back into the pandemic, and I covered this, by the way, early on, when I looked at the public policies, I said, this is not going to end well, that we were covering the suicide rates, the mental health crisis, the loss of learning from kids. And, and basically, we had guests on that, you know, in early 2020, talking about in public health, you can't focus on one thing. And that came out with this notion of focused protection. The vulnerable, the elderly, yep. people with pre-existing conditions needed to be protected. The experience in other countries was go about your business. As, you know, everybody likes to cite Sweden, never closed the schools, kept the economy open. You'll certainly recall when Florida and Texas, the news was, well, everybody there is going to die because they're using focused protection. Instead of like examining what the facts said, and we'll talk about censorship, but People with great bios and real world experience were told that you, you couldn't offer that opinion. We can all agree on this issue. From my perspective, we may not agree how I'm getting there, but there's a big issue between the United States and China. And I think ultimately, early on in the pandemic, the initial caution was warranted because of one big issue. We don't have the ability to create domestically our necessary PPE, so our KN95 masks, our gloves, these products that would have unequivocally protected teachers and protected students early on while we were still figuring out what this thing was, because all of those supply chains or a significant portion of those supply chains are over in China. And the issue here is 
not to get all into it, but during the pandemic, the Chinese government was really extorting President Trump by saying, if you continue to talk about this disease coming from us in a lab here, we're not going to give you your own PPE. Um, so that's a little uh, side story getting sidetracked. But it's really, I think, uh, the death of the middle class, the uh, rise of globalism and this technology that we discussed has created all of this offshoring. And to make sure that we're strong and safe, like voters want us to be, um, I, I think we need to reshore a lot of these critical industries and supply chains. Um, so, so I did want to just hit on that because I think initially it was right to take a cautious approach, but come on, Rich. I mean, we're all vaccinated. The people that are going to get vaccinated are vaccinated. We should be opened back up months ago and and the teachers union should not be pulling the crap that they're pulling in Chicago and other cities where they're refusing to go in and teach these kids because I'm you see the suicide rates you see the substance abuse which my father had to deal with I'm most worried about the kids that lost learning and and you're probably in a better position to talk about it than I am but it's very concerning when you're having a, a five or six year old at a computer screen. They're not going to learn anything. That's right. And they need to see each other's faces. And look, the other thing is talk about a class division. It's like, oh, you know, this child's from an affluent household. Well, now go to this website because the, the home has high speed Internet. They have a quiet place to work and they have a nice computer. And now you go to places that there may not be a workable device in the home. They don't have Wi-Fi, and they don't even have a place to work to do their studies. And they might have to watch younger children. These are real world things that I saw up close and personal. And the aftermath of this is devastating. And, you know, look, a lot of what we've talked about comes down to education. And we need to make sure that we are educating people on the things that make a difference, on science, so that they can make rational decisions when something comes up. You know, they know the scientific method. Does this make sense? Journalism, which if you'd be willing to do it, let's let's come back for a second session and talk about that, because this is so fascinating on politics. And I, I got a feeling that you're even deeper than we can get into today. But so a little forecasting. If we are able to address this political divide, how do we get there? And what's ahead for the 2022 midterms? So I'm going to separate those two. I think time will help us. And this is from people that I've spoken to on my show, Politics Plus Media 101. David Gergen is, is one example. Bill Crystal from the conservative side is another example. There are people who are freaked out. I'm freaked out myself. But I think that time and more people that aren't attacking voters, like you said, we can't have Republicans and Democrats attacking voters. That's ridiculous. But the more time we have, that's going to help us and that's going to be our elixir. Measures though, Real quick, I'm just going to list them off. Um, maybe reining in big tech through antitrust legislation would be number one. Um, Re-examining Section 230 with a scalpel, not not a, a chainsaw or an axe, and that's a little controversial. Uh, number three would be passing a federal gerrymandering law, because what you have happening is the moderates and the people that would resonate with me and you and your listeners, they're getting redistricted out of Congress. So you're getting the more extreme districts, which are Republican plus 20 votes, 20 points, Democrat plus 20 points. And what do you get? You get a bunch of AOCs and not to compare the two because they're not, you get a bunch of Madison Cawthorns on the other side. So if we can do those three things, those would be the immediate fixes. Um, into 2022 forecasting, this is a question that I deal with a lot, and you won't hear this from maybe any other political consultant. 
I wonder how much messaging and political consulting actually can impact an election like 2022 because you have structural factors that are very concerning, Rich. And you know this, I know this, but I think all signs are pointing to an absolute wipeout, blowout loss in the House for the Democrats. And I am a Democrat when I say that. And also the Senate, um, they, they're, they're likely to lose the Senate unless Trump kind of comes in and meddles. Um, but what, why? Inflation. It's uh, at, at an all-time high since 1982. I believe it's up 7 or 8%. Um, not only inflation, coronavirus. It's still here. There's still arguments over schools and masks. Those are losing issues for um, Democrats. And, and then uh, the last thing is, we talked about this earlier, but it's very easy to be the opposition party. You don't need to run for anything. You just need to say, hey, your life is not where it should be. Because those guys in power, the Democrats, they're to blame. And that is what's going to create an energy gap where you're going to have a lot more Republicans turn out, independents leaning towards Republicans with Trump off the ballot, and the Democrats are in big trouble. Yeah, I concur with you. And the Democrats kind of got distracted and now they don't have a record to run on. And I think it's going to get ugly because I think the Republicans will be on the attack because there's a lot of attack services. And the Democrats have nothing to fight back with other than fear and and Trump. And I think those are fading as motivators. How about 2024 presidential election? What would be a great outcome? What might be disastrous? Far too early. I I think that here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you my nightmare scenario. So in the state elections, and these are elections that people aren't focusing on, Rich, you're having pro-Trump candidates run on the big lie platform in places where they will determine and certify votes in the electoral college. So my nightmare scenario is a close electoral college vote where maybe down in Georgia or in any other swing state you pick, use my state in New Hampshire, for example, um, that doesn't have a constitutional order for that state that those electoral votes must be counted based on the popular vote of the state. So if Biden wins that state, they need to go to Biden. I'm worried about such a close election And then you have these Trump state officials controlling how the votes are counted towards the electoral college, where they ultimately send a dual set of electors to the House of Representatives. That being, they send, let's say it's um, a a close vote, New Hampshire, it's um, 270, 268, and it's because somebody won New Hampshire by, by their two electoral votes. What you could have happen is Republican state electors not certifying that election sending the Biden electors and the Trump electors to Congress. And then that throws the whole election into the U.S. House of Representatives for a vote because nobody got to 270. In that instance, even if Democrats control the House of Representatives, they would lose the vote because the way the vote is done, it's not done based on simple majority. It's done based on state. And the Republicans will very likely control a majority of states and the way that the Republican Party has kind of acted in the face of Trump, there is no proof that they would be willing to stand up and not send the electors that Biden won to President Trump. So my nightmare scenario is a soft type of civil war through the Electoral College, which rips apart our country and we may not be able to get our democracy back. 
I think a good win is anything but Trump. I don't think Trump will be a factor. Here was my construct on Trump from the 2016 primaries till today, and it's worked 100% of the time. He does not know the job of being president of the United States. He has no interest in learning the job. He has massive personal problems, severe massive personal problems. And if you look at Everything he's done, it fits in, into that that framework. By way of example, when the early murmurings were coming up, like you know, two, 2018, I want to say that hey, would would Trump leave office, you know, peacefully? And I'm like, like, why wouldn't he, right? And my brother-in-law asked me that question. I said, well, peaceful transfer of power would be he'd have to know the job, right? So you know, there's a chance that he that he won't. <laughs> and look what happened. Uh, and, you know, I've hired a lot of executives, worked with a lot of executives. You can't run anything by the seat of your pants, and and, for, and especially the United States of America. So I think he got in there as a fluke. Uh, I wrote a paper that is on my website. It's The short version is people didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. And there were a lot of uh, votes, I know, in the swing, in swing states where they voted Democrat all down the ticket and either voted for Trump or left it blank because they just didn't want Hillary Clinton to be president. There, there's Trump all of a sudden there. And your take probably, if you look at the primaries where Trump's winning like 22% of the vote, but he's getting all the delegates and the people are losing their, their financial support as, as it went on. I mean, it, it was, I kept waiting for him to go away and he didn't. It was the big field. I, I agree. It was the big field, but I worked for a guy who was kind of Trumpian before Trump. He rose to 2010 Tea Party this. wave. Are you able to say who it is, or Tim Hulescamp? Yeah, yeah, and, and we the next, Tim Hulescamp. So he was he, and this is interesting. He was the guy who was leading the the overthrow of Speaker Boehner, and so I was in the office when Speaker Boehner got thrown out of power in large part because of my boss working with Ted Cruz and the House Freedom Caucus. I thought Trump was going to win the general election, and that's why I went to the RNC because I was interacting with these very extreme Tea Party voters that really didn't care about policy. They cared that they were voting for somebody that was a fighter. And that's what scared me. That's what I thought was going to win the election. And then I just got up close. So I, I hope you're right that he doesn't win it, run again, because it's so close. It's such a razor's edge. No, and I don't I, think I, Biden I, let, can let me, run again. Let me, let me just say this about that. The and, and I've, I've said this many times. First of all, the only good thing about Trump getting nominated is that it blew up the establishment of the Republican Party. The only good thing about him getting elected is that it should have blown up the establishment of the Democrats. But the Democrats, you know, did their thing and put the most establishment guy up there in uh, in 2020. And, and you know what they did to the other candidates and such. If Trump's the nominee my sense is that you're going to look at President Kamala Harris. Trump's Can not she win? Expand- mm-hmm. Can she win? I think, let me ask you this question as a political analyst, Justin. What did Trump do to expand his base? Nothing. Yeah. What did he do to repel people? A lot. Everything. That he could. Right. <laughs> so, so the guys, he's, he's over and people need to understand that. And like, I'm I'm kind of in favor of like adults with executive experience in these roles, you know, or, you know, statesmen. I agree. You know, or, you know, whatever. It's just 
but you know, he sells a lot of uh, advertising space. You know what happened to the cable companies after he was gone? Look, let me let me just ask you anything that we didn't cover on this one. This has been a really great conversation. Or any closing thoughts as we wrap up here? I just wanted to thank you for having me on. I, I listen to your show um, every time. There's an episode that comes out. I appreciate the centrist view that you take, bridging the the gaps. And uh, I'm sure that your audience is uh, as educated and smart as you are. So thank you for having us on. Well, that's that's kind of you to say. We've been on today with Justin Higgins of Politics and Media 101. Please make sure you get that loaded in your podcast player. Uh, Do follow them on social media. And of course, go to Substack.com and join the Common Bridge discussion. It's easy. Substack.com. Put Common Bridge in the search bar, subscribe. I guarantee you we will be worth the minimal $5 per month that we charge on that. You'll be able to comment, perhaps offer a guest column if you wish. Of course, the Common Bridge is available on most podcast outlets, on social media, on Mission Control Radio, and on YouTube TV. And so with our guest today, Justin Higgins, this is Rich Helpy signing off on the Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. All rights reserved.